Hello and welcome to Eldritch Girl and the next chapter of The Crows, which is chapter 11. Content warnings for this chapter include um, the return of an abusive ex and a child ghost with implied child cruelty. The theme tune, as usual, is by Gemma Cartmel. Um, illustrations by Tom Brown. If you do like Tom Brown's work, um, you can now find his Kofi shop as well, which is at kofi.com forward slash Thomas Brown. So I did something that um, you can't really tell by listening. Um, and in the crows, different people have different kinds of thoughts that look different on the page. So um, Carrie's thoughts are in italics and left aligned. Ricky's thoughts are not in italics ever. They are just in brackets and left aligned. And Fairwood's thoughts, um, the ones that I've put with a whisper in the background, um, are right aligned and in italics and they have an ellipsis at the start. So when you're reading, you can um, tell exactly who's thinking what by how it looks on the page. Um, so at this point, um, bearing in mind Carrie doesn't think in brackets, Carrie only thinks in italics. Um, at this point, Carrie's thoughts on the page are now in brackets, but they're still italicised. Um, and that's because I'm, I'm trying to show Ricky's contact and kind of um he's he's kind of put mucus on her uh, previously in chapter 10 and he's been sleeping with her in her bed and she's got all of that going on um so he's kind of in her head even though he doesn't really know that he is or means to be he's starting to rub off on her and she's starting to think in the way that he does um, and so that's shown on the page by the fact that her thoughts are now in brackets. Um, so there's a bit later on where it all gets very confusing and everybody is in and out of each other's heads all the time. And so on the page, you can see who's affecting whom by whether the thoughts are in italics, in brackets, right aligned, um, you know, so you can kind of see what a mess everybody's head is and I can't really do that in sound so this is the point where Carrie starts thinking in brackets like Ricky does uh, make of that what you will if you didn't notice that when you were reading um yeah <laughs> um interesting to know what people thought of that but yeah so so I can't really do that in terms of sound effects so you're just going to have to kind of imagine it from this point onwards. <laughs> Enjoy the uh, second half of chapter 11. 2nd of May. On Wednesday, Mercy turned up with Tina Harris, the mortuary assistant, as the bandages came off. Tina Harris was a plump, busty woman in a tight-fitting vintage dress, russet hair rolled up in a 40s style with makeup to match. She looked like a plus-size pin-up model. As she bent over Carrie to unwind the bandages, her cleavage nearly took Carrie's eye out. Carrie shut her eyes, letting the woman do her work. Tina was not used to dealing with living people. She stripped Carrie of her bandages with rough, cold hands, talking over her as if forgetting Carrie was conscious. Her glossy pink lips bowed in a tight frown. I'd rather not get involved in this, she complained. 
Bert's moved out. Meredith bloody Blake is breathing down my neck about mysterious deaths connected to Barker Crescent. And honestly, Mez, I'd rather not be here. Curses give me the creeps. She gave the last bandage a sharp tug, jerking Carrie unpleasantly in the process. Tina ignored Carrie's grunt of surprise, bundling the used strips into a ball. Right, there we go. I'm dying for a fag. Can you hold the fort here while I go outside? Mercy took them gingerly, wrinkling her nose. Uh, sure, yeah. Don't mind me, Carrie muttered, sitting up. Tina didn't. She bustled out of the room, already rummaging in her handbag for her cigarettes and a lighter, leaving Mercy behind to bag and bin the bandages. Mercy had dressed for the occasion using an ice cream parlour palette, as if combating a dark curse could be achieved through the power of pastels alone. Today, she was experimenting with hair extensions. Carrie, how are you feeling? I'm fine. Carrie startled Mercy by standing up, rubbing the remains of the canary yellow residue into her middle. It was bacon grease thick, squidging under her fingertips. She missed Fairwood's solid, concentrated presence and, for some reason, Ricky Porter's gruff banter. She rubbed her waist, for a moment feeling a warm pressure there that she couldn't explain. Carrie wondered who had been changing her underwear, but Tina had mentioned that Miss Charlotte, whoever that was, had been nursing her for the duration of her wrap. She was in desperate need of a shower, but the instructions had been not to get wet until the preparation had all been absorbed into her skin. She wasn't sure what it was supposed to do, nor if Dr Monday was, strictly speaking, a proper doctor, but either way things had gone beyond the NHS. She stood in her bra and knickers without a shred of self-consciousness, which wasn't like her at all, watching Mercy blush. That was weird. Fairwood watched her all the time and it never blushed about anything. People are weird. Oh gosh, sorry. Mercy hovered by the bed. Um, do you need clothes? Can I help? Tina can go if she's got better things to do, Carrie remarked, grabbing a top from the clean pile on the chair. Dr Monday said something to Fairwood about protection. Oh yeah, Tina's got something for you. Mercy held out a bracelet. You'd better wear it, just in case. The bracelet was simple enough and looked hand-woven from strands of hair. Beads of semi-precious stones and healing crystals were set at intervals along it. Carrie took it and looped it over her wrist, letting Mercy tie it securely for her. What's it made of? Um, Mercy shrugged. I'm not sure. Is that human hair? Mercy blushed red. Possibly? Where'd she get it? It was given to her. Look, we think we know who did this to you. Where's Porter? Pretty much said. Porter? Carrie pulled her wrist back. Ricky's cousin? Yeah, he's on Tina's pub quiz team. Mercy fidgeted with the lace on her skirt. Wes thinks... He thinks his gran is up to something. No shit. Carrie snorted softly. She probably knew a little more than Tina, but that didn't help. What the hell is going on? Why are members of the History Society trying to kill me? Better ask Ricky that, hadn't you? Mercy asked, disapproval clouding her face. He's taken a real shine to you, hasn't he? Only because I've got something he wants. Carrie didn't want to get into all that now and couldn't explain why she was helping him. Mercy, an insider all her life, couldn't possibly understand. She finished dressing, taking a deep, satisfied breath. That's better. Thanks. Thanks for, for coming over. The clouds scudded away as Mercy smiled. Sure thing. Now Tina's here, Carrie said, new life flooding her veins. I'd like to ask her about the seance. Can you grab the music box? I haven't moved it. 
Mercy scratched her head. Oh, um, really? Her voice had risen. Um, okay. She scuttled off to locate the airing cupboard while Carrie finished making herself decent and headed downstairs. She's in the kitchen, the company I'm not allowing in. Carrie burst into the kitchen door to see Tina, a magnificent vision in green, chain-smoking out of the back door. I told you, Tina announced to someone standing beyond it. She's not here. Push off. Christ, she always did have a shit taste in friends. I'll be back around later, a rich, familiar voice promised, full of sneer and swagger. I know you're there, Carrie. The sound of her name set paroxysms of panic through her, her limbs reacting faster than her brain. She dropped behind the table. Piss on off then, darling, Tina said, ample frame filling the doorway, blocking his view. She blew a long jet of smoke in his direction. Good boy, that's it. The figure marched away around the corner towards the front of the house, where, Carrie just knew, a blue saloon would be waiting on her gravel drive. Carrie forced herself up as her knees protested their brutal treatment. Shit. Tina turned, surveying her with a cocked eyebrow, but not, Carrie felt, without an edge of sympathy. Tina wielded sympathy like a scythe. I'm guessing that's someone best consigned to the bin of history? Carrie found herself recalling the chilling reputation of her stretch of road and wished Phil would drive away into oblivion, disappear without a trace and be gone from her life forever. No, mustn't make wishes. They might work. Tina exhaled a smoky jet of commiseration, correctly interpreting her silence. We've all been there, love. Carrie looked away. It was all so mundane. How could something as simple as a knock on the door open the gateway to your own private hell? Mercy jogged in and dumped the music box on the table, rubbing her hands together vigorously. Here it is. Oh, what have I missed? Tina let Carrie tell it, although she didn't want to. Oh, um, just an unwanted visitor. Ricky Porter, Mercy guessed. My ex. The words burned like bile throbbing in her throat. Tina rolled her eyes. Ricky can't set foot in the crows, she told Mercy, answering at least one of Carrie's private questions. Great Aunt Eglantine saw to that after the, you know. She pointed at the chimney and then upwards. Mercy winced. Oh, right. She fidgeted with her lacy skirt, frowning. Speaking of which, T, um, Carrie was wondering about, about having a seance. Tina looked from Carrie to the music box and back again. I'm not sure that will help she said slowly. Is this about the girl in the chimney? Carrie nodded. Look, um, if her spirit's trapped in there, that's bad news. Tina moved around the table, the music box sitting innocently between them all. Great Aunt Eglantine used to trap spirits that she couldn't help cross over, the ones that were resistant, let's say, and tough to exorcise. That's a bad sign, as far as we're concerned. Who knows what will happen if we let it out? She was just a little girl, Carrie mumbled, and whoever wanted that ritual done now wants to kill me and I want to know why. She raised her voice a little, afraid of being too loud. Can you put it back in the box afterwards? Tina winced. I don't know. Can we try? I mean, maybe that's it, maybe. Once the ghost is out of the box, she'll tell us what happened and we can... Carrie trailed off. Can what? Go to the police? With what proof? 
set the ghost on her tormentors? With what consequences? Tina was watching her, her expression asking all the same questions. Carrie shook her head. What should I do then? Chuck it down the well? Not make a wish, obviously. I don't know much about this house, Tina admitted. We moved away from here when I was ten. I haven't been back in town for very long. But you're in a lot of trouble with someone, that I know, and I'm not making a secret of it. It makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to be here. I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm doing Dr Monday a favour because he asked. She paused. Getting at someone that way is just cowardly. Carrie realised she meant the cursed flowers. It's the History Society, she said. I don't know what they did or exactly who was involved, but it's the History Society. That's the link. A few of them are old enough to have been around at that time. She steeled herself, locking stairs with Tina. I just want names or, or a name or a clue, a hint, something. I want to know who exactly is doing this to me and why. If I'm going to be targeted for something they think I know, then I want to bloody well know what they think I know. She paused, if that makes sense. Damn it, Tina muttered. Fine, all right, we'll try. But if Great Aunt Eglantine couldn't get anything out of her, I don't think we'll get much either. At least if we get a name out of her, you'll be more prepared. She played with her own bracelet. That ought to keep the Wens and the rest of their clan at bay anyway. Carrie rubbed the beads on her wrist. Thanks. I learned best practice from my mum. And she learned from her great-aunt, Tina said. She was pretty formidable. Bit of an oracle was great-aunt Eglantine. Eglantine Pritchard. That's her? You've heard of her, then? Carrie nodded. Oracles and seances seemed the thickest end of the wedge now, compared with werewolves, sentient houses and doctors who wore masks of human skin. So, what do we do? she asked. Shouldn't there be more of us? Three is a good number. Tina glanced through the open door at the hall, the tiles and panels reaching up the dizzying heights of the grand staircase, then looked around the kitchen itself, casting her curious gaze over the freshly painted ceiling. And this house is a good location. It's alive, is that right? Carrie nodded. Houses are alive in lots of ways, Tina said, as if she had rehearsed this before coming. You can feel their energies, their characters, sometimes even before you walk in the door. Animists believe even rocks and stones have a life force of their own. I suppose this one just crossed a line somewhere and became alive in a different sense. A, dare I say it, more mainstream sense. She looked at Carrie. I take it you wouldn't ordinarily be emotionally attached to a building? Carrie shook her head slightly, almost afraid that the crows would be offended by her past insensitivity. Tina nodded. Is there somewhere else we can go? An empty room is best, less to hurt ourselves on. There's nothing in a few of the guest rooms. We could go in one of those. Are we using Ouija boards or something? Mercy had grown pale. Bitch, please. Tina rolled her eyes. She motioned for Carrie to lead the way, stepping back to let her pass. After you. Mercy scooped up the music box and scuttled in their wake. Carrie was glad of the activity after days of bandaged sleep. She didn't have the drugged wooziness of sleeping pills or illness, nor the gnawing ache in her stomach that she should have after her lack of food. She didn't even feel particularly thirsty. Her skin was smooth and supple despite her need of a shower, the preparation now fully soaked into her pores. If anything, she felt refreshed, 
light on her feet rather than light-headed. Do you know what Dr. Monday did to me? Carrie asked. Tina followed her up, Mercy bringing up the rear with tentative slow steps. No, Tina admitted. I work with the dead, but I'm pretty certain it's a preventative. How does it work? Tina waited until she was at the top of the stairs to answer, catching her breath. It renders you dead to the one who cursed you. It makes you a new person to all intents and purposes. Carrie could believe that. She certainly felt like a new person. All right. And this bracelet? That'll ward off the evil eye and anything stronger or stranger. Tina ran her fingers over her own. I learned pretty fast that if you're going to have anything to do with the Porters, the Shores, the Foremans, the Wens or the Wen McVeighs, you'd better have one of these. She caught Carrie's expression. They're all related, she supplied, and Carrie decided to pretend she was hearing this for the first time. Ricky Porter, Mez said you've met. Well, he's their current... I don't know what, but they all seem to look up to him. Spiritual guide of the clan, truth teller. Soothsayer, Carrie supplied. That's what he calls it. He's only about our age, but don't let that fool you. There's a lot of rumblings in the clan at the moment. I don't get involved and I don't ask, but when you've got Wes Porter on your quiz team, you learn stuff. She shrugged. Where are we doing this? Carrie led the way to the empty guest room. Here? Perfect. Tina invited Mercy and Carrie to sit in a rough triangle in the middle of the guest room and took a small polished stone from her pocket. The stone had a hole in the middle, almost a perfect circle. I'd usually draw on the floor in chalk, Tina said. I don't know if the house would mind that. The friendly creak as the floorboards bowed slightly beneath them made Carrie smile in spite of the weirdness of it. But Mercy sprang to her feet and Tina closed her eyes, palms flat on the floor, looking sick. That's fine, Carrie interpreted. Mercy passed her the box. Tina nodded, still with her eyes shut, round chin tilted slightly upwards as if in silent prayer. She moistened her lips and slowly brought a piece of chalk from her voluminous skirt, as if asked to empty her pockets by a paranoid gunman. I'll be gentle, she promised. Carrie swallowed a grin. The floorboards don't mind. The encouraging creak made Tina fumble the chalk, but she managed not to drop it. She put the stone in the middle of them all, positioning it carefully and drawing a circle around it. God, this is weird. Normally I'd have a candle. The flame is... Never mind. We'll do that later, if the ghost doesn't want to go back in the box. Mercy, uncharacteristically, was tight-lipped and saying nothing at all. With longer hair, she looked much younger, more vulnerable. You don't have to do this, Carrie said to her, but she shrugged and settled, staring at the floorboards. Tina drew the protective symbols on the floor, and others Carrie didn't recognise. Right. Open it. Carrie pinched the stem of the broken key, the nub sticking out a little way. To her surprise, it turned easily, the lid springing open with a rusty click. A broken ballerina with half her skirt missing and the rest of it sadly torn, face obliterated with age and grime, twisted drunkenly on her platform. One little arm swung from a dislocated shoulder and all the paint had been worn away. It was playing three blind mice, flat and out of tune. Yet another thing to feel sorry for. Tina sat back down in her place and held out her hands for Mercy and Carrie to take one each. Her hand in Carrie's was clammy. Mercy's was similarly unpleasant to grip, but there was little choice. Carrie sat still, the energies of the house rippling up through her, palms hot, 
part of a sorority of strangers bound by sweat. Tina took in three deep breaths with slow exhalations, each one longer than the last. An expectant, pregnant silence fell over them. Tina muttered something in what Carrie thought was German, but then she caught the words gast and cargast and realised it was Old English. It was one of those rare occasions when an English literature degree came in handy. Still muttering, Tina opened her eyes and stared directly between Carrie and Mercy over their joined hands to a place behind them, about halfway up the wall. Her eyes followed something moving further up to the ceiling until the mortuary assistant was staring directly above the little pebble lying on the floor. Speak to us, Tina commanded in modern English, and the chalk quivered by her side. Mercy was looking decidedly grey. Carrie could hear the buzzing of fat blue bottles in the room, distracting her. She turned her head slightly, not wanting to break the circle for fear of what may happen if she did, trying to find the source of the irritating buzzing sound. A thick mass of flies, crawling up and down the wallpaper in a river of tickling legs and vibrating wings made her flinch. Tina clamped Carrie's hand in hers, while on her other side Mercy's hot, slippery fingers nearly slid from her grasp as Mercy let out an involuntary squirming whimper. Maggots dropped out of the wall, curling and writhing on the floorboards and disappearing in the cracks. Carrie shuddered. Speak to us, Tina repeated, her fingers white with the effort of holding on. The chalk beside her quivered. Their eyes travelled down to it as a small fly landed there, wringing its front legs. What is it? Tina asked. Is there something you need? Something we have to do? The chalk rolled away from her towards Carrie, leaving tiny flecks of white dust in its wake. Carrie closed her eyes, excitement building in her body, the energies of the house flowing through her in waves. The wooden boards beneath her were pulsing with life, the grain carrying messages to her like nerves, not words, but sensations, images, colours. They flooded her, growing in power and urgency. The chalk bumped against her foot. She let go of Mercy's hand and picked it up. Images of the empty house, its rooms shut up, its furniture covered with dust sheets, its reclusive owner cloistered in three rooms and seeing no one but the, t but the cook, crowded her mind and obscured her vision. She was aware of the current room, the chalk signs on the floor and the flies on the wall, Tina and Mercy staring at her from their positions on the bare boards, but all this faded and closed into a pinprick of restricted, blurred myopia. It wasn't her hand that took the chalk. This hand was too small, with nibbled nails and freckled, suntanned skin that had spent a blissful summer out of doors. Yet it belonged to her, somehow. Her rosebud pink smock dress was covered in blood. She couldn't speak. Warm liquid filled her mouth, but she could taste nothing. It was only when she started to choke that the sensations left her, vacuumed right out of her body with an abrupt rush. Carrie slumped forwards, only coming to her senses as her cheek hit the floor. The circle broken, the flies dispersed, the room still. A dull headache assailed her temple. She groaned, letting Mercy heave her up. What the hell? Why keep picking on me? Look at that! Mercy gave her shoulder an unsympathetic shake, the words on the floor more urgent than Carrie's latest trauma. Carrie focused, the painful throbbing in her head now concentrated behind her left eye. The words were not in her handwriting, although there was chalk dust on her fingertips. They said, Can't tell. Find my tongue. 